One of the harsh realities of life in a fallen world is that people cling to that which kills them. We witness this reality in the cocaine addicts, for example, who cling to an addiction that is destroying their lives. We witness this in alcoholics and chain smokers who hold on to habits that slowly snuff out their lives. We see this reality not only in the physical realm, but we see it in the social realm as well. When people cling to relationships that drag them down, dragging them down to destruction, but unwilling to let go. There's a young man with great potential. He joins up with a gang and throws away his future by remaining loyal to a group of thugs who will betray him when it is at first their advantage to do so. But he keeps on. There's a promiscuous young woman who poisons her own soul as she pursues a romantic relationship with a married man who selfishly destroys his family with this affair. Her parents weep. His wife and children rage with bitterness. But these two lovers continue to cling to one another as their lives unravel. It is one of the mysteries of iniquity. Fallen human beings clinging tenaciously to that which destroys them. But we must understand that this is not the unique battle of the chemically dependent of gang members and adulterers. Their struggle is merely a reflection of the struggle that we all face all of the time. And we need to come to this recognition today as we enter into Luke chapter 18. You can hold on to the very best gifts of God to your eternal destruction. Anything that you refuse to release to God will separate you from Him forever. The opposite is just as true, however. Anything that you let go for the love of God will be eternally rewarded. We discover this first proposition in a conversation between Jesus and a young man in Luke chapter 18. And we discover this second proposition in a follow-up discussion between Jesus and his disciples. We've looked at this passage before together, but let's remember what Jesus teaches us here. You can hold on to the very best gifts of God to your destruction. We find a man here in chapter 18 and verse 18 who is clinging to death. A rich man holding on to death. Verse 18, a certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's an amazing question. We notice the status of this young man, first of all. He is a ruler. The generic Greek word really doesn't give us a whole lot as to what he exactly did, but he was a Jewish official. Matthew adds that he was a young man in chapter 19 of that gospel, and we soon learn that he was very wealthy. So as we say it, this man had life by the tail. Youth, wealth, importance, he has it all. But we notice his question, a question about eternal life. 
Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? According to Mark's account, this man kneeled before Jesus. He was very sincere. It says there as well that Jesus loved him. That is, he saw in him an earnestness that Jesus appreciated very much. What must I do to inherit eternal life? From our perspective, we obviously detect here a problem, a subtle problem. He says, what must I do to inherit? That is, his question indicates a conviction that salvation can be earned by human merit. How can I perform, Jesus, to gain eternal life? It is an assumption that most people make, that we can do something to please God. We can gain heaven's gates by how we live, how we perform. It's an assumption that Jesus will expose as erroneous in a short while. But first, verse 19, Jesus asks a profound question. It is a stroke of singular genius on Christ's part to ask this question. He says in verse 19, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. That is an amazing question. There are two issues, among others, which people must consider if they are to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The first question is, who is Jesus? And the second question is, who am I? In this question, in this response, Jesus strikes right at both of those issues. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Subtly, he asks the man, is that why you're calling me good? Because no one is good but God. Why do you call me good? But on that second point, who is he? Who is this young man? Jesus says, remember, no one is good except God. The man is asking, what can I do to, to gain eternal life? And Jesus says, remember this, there's no one who is good except God. The issue is not what this man can do. The issue is who Jesus is. And in this simple turn of phrase, Jesus strikes at the heart of both of these issues. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Jesus doesn't press that point any further, at least in the information that we have in the text of Scripture. He moves on, letting that sort of sit in the air before this young man, and he presses back now to the man's original question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Let's take up that question, Jesus says in verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Jesus summarizes here the second table of the law of Moses. That section of scripture, of, of revelation that deals with loving one's fellow man. You are a son of Abraham, Jesus says essentially. You know the Mosaic law. You know what God demands and on what criteria He will judge the souls of men. Keep the law of God and you will gain eternal life. Verse 21, All these I have kept since I was a boy, He said. 
How do you read that response? Do you read this response as a young man who's very excited? Wow, am I glad. Yes, I've done all these things. That's wonderful news. I now have eternal life because I have kept the law of God. Is that how you read his response? As we draw in the other evangelists as they write about this same situation, that is not at all the spirit, I think, of this man's response. Let me ask this question. Is this new and exciting news to this man? That by keeping the law of God you will inherit eternal life? No. If you had asked him the day before, have you kept all these laws, he would have said yes. He knows that this is his self-assessment already before he comes to Jesus. But you know what? Having kept the law of God, he still comes to Jesus and says, how do I get to heaven? He's still empty. Fully convinced that he has kept the law of God, he asks the question, how do I gain eternal life? He knows that he lacks something. I think that his comment is hollow. It is tinged with disappointment. In fact, Matthew adds that his response then is, what do I still lack? There's got to be more. Now, he was dead wrong, of course. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 says this, No one, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Keeping the law of God does not bring us to heaven. Keeping the law of God simply shows us our need. It shows us that we cannot keep God's truth. This is the function of the law, and this man fails to understand this. He fails to understand, for instance, that adultery, God's command against adultery, is more than a command against the act itself. As Jesus came and taught us how to read the law, he said that anyone who looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery in his heart. In other words, if we simply want to commit adultery, we have violated the law of God. Consider the law against murder. To simply despise or curse another person violates God's law against murder. When we begin to realize what God's law truly is, we realize we do not stand up to it very well at all. And we don't come in today and I say, guess what, I've met here, I'm meeting here with a group of adulterers and murderers. And everybody would say, who are you talking to? That's not me. But let's begin to think about the law the way that Christ interpreted the law and what God, in fact, intended the law to teach us, and we realize that we are all adulterers and murderers. It might simply be the person who cut you off on the road the other day, but for a brief moment of time, you might have wished that person gone. It's the seed of murder. And should that seed be allowed to take root, it might lead any of us under certain circumstances to snuff out another life.
to simply long to have a sexual relationship with someone who is not our mate, to simply want it for a moment of time, makes us an adulterer. This man had not kept the law of God. This man simply was confused about what the law of God was. And the confusion is evidenced in his spiritual emptiness. Can you imagine standing before this great rabbi of Israel and saying, I have kept the law of Moses and still be empty? The law was teaching him that something was missing. He had done everything he could to become a good man, yet there was no peace. Jesus does not get into an argument here with the man, as I have argued the point for just a few moments for us. He does not begin to say, yes, you have violated the law of God. There are ways in which you have done wrong and stand guilty before God. Jesus doesn't even go there. He sort of runs around the whole thing, and he drives at the heart of the issue at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. This man has clearly not lived a life of open rebellion against God, yet he clings to what is killing him. He holds tightly to his riches. Jesus detects this, and he goes right after the problem. You lack one thing. Jesus is not agreeing that the man has perfectly kept the law. He's ignoring that point. Jesus is simply taking another angle to pierce the man's conscience. Okay, you, you believe that you've done all that God requires. I ask of you this. Give away your wealth. Sell it and give to the poor. Is Jesus saying that giving money away can earn one's place in heaven? Is Jesus saying that one can earn their way by what they do? It's not the idea at all. What Jesus is striving to do with this comment is to show the man that he holds in his hands his idol. It's his wealth. The man is clinging to his money and that separates him from God. So Jesus says essentially two things here. Let it go and follow me. Turn from your money and follow me and we'll walk to heaven together. You see, the essence of the law of Moses is to love your neighbor as yourself. As Jesus looked to that second column of the law, this man felt he measured up pretty well. But Jesus, in a sense, turns here to the first column of the law, which is love God with all your heart. Let's put the brakes on there and go back to that. Love God with all your heart. That's a high calling. To love God with your whole soul and being is what God requires. And if you love God with all of your heart, then He can ask of you anything and you will do it. I ask of you, says Jesus, just like a little child, remember verses 15 through 17, just like a little child, leave your wealth here 
and come follow me. We notice the man's response in verse 23. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Very sad is a strong Greek word. It means overwhelmed by sorrow. This is a rough day for this guy. Empty spiritually, feeling he's done everything he can. He finally has Jesus in his sights, and he can ask the great rabbi, how can I go home today with eternal life? And what Jesus says brings even greater sorrow to his heart. He is blindsided. Jesus has put his finger on the man's God, a God that he did not realize he was worshiping. But given the choice between following Jesus and keeping his wealth, the man holds on to his wealth and he turns his back on Jesus and walks home. What he held on to was killing him. Jesus graciously called him to let go, but the man could not shake himself free. He loved his money more than he loved God, and that was a death sentence. As Alfred Plummer puts it so well, he went back to the wealth which had not satisfied him before and which would satisfy him still less now. Jesus comments in verse 24, He looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Camels don't go through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. That's the point. One commentator says, Wealth can shrink the door of the kingdom down to an impassable peephole. The self-focused security of the wealthy is a padlock against kingdom entry. And yet, isn't this a mystery? Very few of us, perhaps none of us, would pass up more wealth if we could get it. We want to be more wealthy than we are. Yet Jesus says how hard it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. There's a danger in wealth. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? If it is like a camel passing through the eye of a needle for a rich man to enter into heaven, well, I might be the size of a dog, but I'm still not going through the eye of that needle. How is this possible? And does not the Old Testament say that within Israel, those who honor the Lord are blessed materially? This man is clearly under the blessing of God. If he can't get into heaven, how can any of us get into heaven? Oh, thank God for Jesus' words here. I thank God for Jesus' words. What does he say? He replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Thank God. 
Camels don't pass through the eyes of the needle. And rich men don't enter into the kingdom of God. In fact, sinners don't enter into the kingdom of God. But what is impossible for us is possible for God. Thank God. We cannot earn eternal life, but God can give it, and he does. Isn't there a great word of encouragement here for those interested in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? I thank God this verse is in Scripture. I cling to it as a witness for Jesus. What is impossible with us is possible with God. I look to people who are so satisfied in their world or so enshackled in their sin, and I say there's no way that this person will respond to the gospel of faith in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no way that they will be transformed and become a follower of Christ. There is no way. Well, that's true. There isn't humanly. But I thank Jesus for his words to remember that what is impossible with us is possible with God. I don't have to save anybody. I don't have to convince anybody on the power of my own argumentation. What is impossible with me is possible with God. What is impossible for the sinner is possible with the power of God. He is our confidence. He is our assurance that He will reach the lost and bring them into heaven, not because they have earned the way, but because this is His work of transforming grace to bring sinners into His kingdom forgiven on the merits of Christ. That is our confidence. And is that not then our joy as witnesses of Christ? That I have the privilege to be used as an instrument in the hand of God to proclaim this gospel and to watch God take it and transform a heart. What a wonderful privilege is ours to take the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is impossible with God is possible. Or what is impossible with man is possible with God. This is our joy. This man, however, in his response clings to death. He does not respond to the offer of grace on the part of Jesus. But that leads the disciples who have heard this exchange to ask some questions. We see a man clinging to death, and we see in the disciples people who are embracing life. Verse 28, Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. He's really responding just like the rich young ruler. He's asking assurance that he will enter eternal life, that he will have treasure in heaven. He presses the point that he and the disciples have, in fact, done what the young ruler refused to do. Namely, they have left everything to follow Jesus. Now, let's think for a moment about Peter. Peter has left everything, hasn't he? Peter, you remember, has turned his back on his fishing business. He beached the boat, put away the nets, perhaps gave them away to someone else or put them in storage. We don't know exactly how that worked, but remember Jesus called him away from his business and Peter followed. 
And Peter, we know, has a family. His mother-in-law was healed, remember, back at Capernaum. So he's got a family of some sort. He turns his back on his family at Capernaum to follow Jesus. And Peter has gone with Jesus through all the ridicule and all the hardships of these three years of journey. Peter has left everything behind, in fact, as have these other disciples for this period of time to follow Christ. What good will our sacrifice secure for us? Peter is asking. Now, I don't know about you, but that hits me at first as being fairly self-absorbed. I mean, come on, Peter. You want to know what you're getting out of this? Is that what you're asking? Imagine how Jesus could answer Peter. Sacrifice? Listen, Peter, you've left your family, your home, and your fishing business in Capernaum for a few years. I have left the splendors of heaven to take on flesh. Let's not talk about sacrifice, Peter. That could have been Jesus' response. I am going to be ridiculed and flogged and crucified to pay the penalty of your sin. Let's not talk anymore about sacrifice. And Jesus could have said, reward, listen, Peter, it is selfish and undignified to talk about reward in heaven. You're just a materialist at heart, Peter. Is that how Jesus responds? It is amazing, this exchange. What do we get for our sacrifice? Peter asks. Notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't discourage Peter at all. He says, I tell you the truth, verse 29. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. The reward, many times as much in this age. God will never be found in man's debt. We will never do a favor for God that he does not reward because he is God and we are the creature. Jesus says essentially that everyone who genuinely lets go of any prize for the cause of Christ and the glory of God will have his or her hands emptied in order that God may fill them with his riches. You leave these things, you will have many times more in this life. Leave your family to serve Christ. Give away your money to the Lord's work. Invest time and sacrifice sleep and spend your abilities in the cause of Jesus and you will gain. This is not a black hole into which you pour everything that you have and lose it forever. You will gain. You will gain in this life. Not necessarily in kind, This is no health and wealth gospel that I give God $10 and I can guarantee that he'll be showing up with a thousand at my front door pretty soon. It is not that at all. It is pouring away the things of this life, giving them to Christ, who then puts back into our hands greater riches. Sometimes they are in kind and sometimes they are not. Had the rich young ruler given away his wealth, he may have remained in poverty the rest of his life. But you know what? He might have been at Pentecost. 
and all of the riches in this world and all of the power that he had as a ruler in Jerusalem would have never compared to the riches of the power at Pentecost. And the riches of seeing God transform his heart and the hearts of others and the church begin. He turned his back on eternal riches when he said no to Christ. It is arrogant to think that we could give God anything that would help him by hurting us. It is arrogant to think that we could give God anything that would help him by hurting us. Remember what he says to Peter. Anyone who leaves these things will not fail to receive many times as much in this age. And in the age to come, eternal life. It's both and. The reward of this life multiplied by eternity. In a sense, Jesus is saying to this young man what he has said to his disciples and what he says throughout his ministry. If we could paraphrase it, he who saves his life will lose it, but he who loses his life will save it. He's just saying that to this man in different words. Let go of your life and I will give you real life. But you've got to let go of your idols. Anything you hold too dearly will steal your joy in this life and will damn you for eternity. We have to go into heaven empty-handed. Anything, however, that we let go for the sake of God's kingdom will be richly rewarded both here and for all eternity. This is Christian truth. It is not the way that our culture teaches us to think. We are taught at every turn to hang on to everything you can as tenaciously as possible that the abundance of things is the essence of life. Jesus says otherwise. You let go and let me fill your hands. Put yourself in this young man's sandals and come up in his place before Jesus Christ and hear in your own mind from the voice of Jesus what he's asking you to let go of. What does he want you to release? I'm not saying that necessarily what that necessarily means in implication, but what is it that is nearest and dearest to you? Your health, your wealth, your family, respect, your job. If you walked up to Jesus today and he said, I want you to come with me and I want you to leave that behind, would you really go? Would I? Would I be willing to leave it behind to follow him? If not, if there's hesitation there, then we are evidencing that we are holding on to idols. We are holding on to small gods with a small g 
We are holding on to things that are clogging up our attention and our focus upon the Lord. We should realize intuitively within our hearts that should Jesus ask us to leave anything, it would be a call of His grace. And I know those are dangerous words. To leave your family behind. To leave your wealth or your health behind. You know, Jesus may be asking you to do that someday soon. If he takes your mate, will you still follow him? If he takes your wealth, will you still follow him? If he takes everything that is nearest and dearest to you, will you still walk with Jesus? If you are holding on to anything so tightly that you would not let it go to follow him, then that thing is killing you. Let it go. Let it go and live. If you're genuinely free of idolatry, then you will demonstrate. We will demonstrate that freedom by freely letting go of our time and our money and our abilities, and we will invest these treasures in the cause of Jesus Christ. And as you do this, with genuine heart, you will experience the joy of laying down one gift only to receive something greater, both in this life and in eternity. This is where God really gets the hypocrite. The hypocrite lays things down, hoping to achieve, but still has his hands full, and therefore sacrifices the grace and goodness of God that comes in response to a genuine gift. Does that make sense? Laying things down for others to see, but still clinging to them in his or her heart, that person's hands are still full when God would give blessing if it were genuinely given. We must understand it is never a loss when we let go of anything Jesus wants us to give to him. That is an investment, an investment that will reap eternal dividends. We can trust him in this. As shared before, and it's so fitting, I'll share again for those that haven't heard it in this context, the story of Samuel Zwemer, who toiled in nearly fruitless evangelism for some 50 years among Muslims in Persia. I don't want to spend too much time to spell out those details, but think through that. Hot, hot, miserable conditions for 50 years. Almost nothing to show for it. People who ridiculed and hated him, despised him, told him to go home. We don't need you here. We've got our own God. We don't need yours. His whole life, 50 years. And to bring the cost to its ultimate level within eight days. Within eight days, he buried two daughters, a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. 
this man gave up much for the cause of Christ. Zuemer's life was drawing to a close after these 50 years of ministry. Think of what he's given up. He said this. The sheer joy of it all comes back. Gladly would I do it all over again. Had he let go as a hypocrite just to get people's attention, he'd be one bitter missionary. But letting go of his family and his reputation and ease of circumstances, genuinely letting it go to the glory of Christ, he said, I would do it over again. Does he not care about his daughters? Does he not care about the sacrifice to his family? Obviously he does. This, however, is a man who's not insane. This is a man, man who is tasting the reward of heaven in this life. He was experiencing Luke 18 and verse 30. Whoever lets go will not fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. And Samuel Zwemer holds up that cup, having tasted it, and, said, and says to us, It is good. May we join him by letting go of our lives in order that we might truly live. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask, dear God, uh, that we would discern and sense if there is anything that we're holding on to that we would not let go if Christ would ask us to let go. Is there something in my heart is there something in our lives? It might be extremely painful. But God, is there anything that we're holding on to that's killing us? I pray that you'd reveal that in our minds right now. Bring conviction to our hearts. Lord, perhaps there's some that are simply holding on, as this man did, to his religious deeds and to the ease of life that he enjoyed under your hand of grace. I pray, God, if there would be any among us who are doing that, that you would bring conviction to our hearts and help us to see and to let go that we might live. Lord, we don't all have the call from you to give away all of our wealth. We don't all receive from you the call to go to another land and to live in exile, proclaiming the gospel of Christ. But, Lord, whatever it is that you ask of us, I pray that we would willingly do it. I pray that we would hold on to nothing in this life. Nothing. No relationship, no possession, no experience. That we would hold on to nothing that would separate us 
from our love for you. Help us to see that, Father, I pray, and to live our lives in a manner that brings pleasure and glory to you, that we might enjoy eternal riches now and forever and ever. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of our Savior, because he has laid down his life to take on the full penalty of our sin. He has paid that price with his life. He has defeated death through his resurrection. And so, Father, through faith in this wise plan of salvation, we give thanks to you that we can let go of everything. Knowing, as we have through our salvation, that you will always fill our hands with greater riches. Thank you for this knowledge and confirming it in our minds through this text of Scripture. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.